Siyoto Ofa, and welcome back to the Tokyo Kamea podcast. Let's do a recap of the last episode. <laughs> Finau Ukalala has taken complete control of Ava'u, but he wasn't done yet. He organized a fono at the village of Makabe, and he called all of his warriors, his matapule, his priests, and also the same for Vava'u. And they all gathered at the Malae in Makabe. Unbeknownst to the warriors and chiefs of Vava'u, this was a setup. As soon as they began the fono, Ulukalala ordered them captured. 18 prisoners altogether, including famed Vava'u warriors Naufahu, Pupunu, and Kakahu. 12 of the Vava'u warriors were beaten to death with clubs, and the other six, including the three chiefs forementioned, were drowned in leaky canoes. A chief by the name of Mahepuku desired to return to Ha'apai. He gifted his plantation to Finau Ulukalala. Mariner asked if he could be the new caretaker of this land, and Ulukalala agreed. A month later, there was a report of a whale that beached nearby. This prompted Mariner to recall a memory of when they were in Ha'apai, shortly after they retreat from Tongata. From this chapter, we learn just how valuable whale ivory was during those times in Tonga. Shortly after, a ship arrived in Mava'u. Mariner and Ulukalala just happened to be nearby in the island of Ofu. And surprisingly, Ulukalala allowed Mariner to go and check out the boat, knowing full well that he intended to leave. Ulukalala's chiefly advisors were totally against it, but Ulukalala was like, eh, why do we need to detain him? He's free to go if he wants. However, Mariner's hopes were dashed when he arrived on the boat and the captain told him that he's not taking any more passengers and Mariner noticed that three of the passengers already on the boat were his crewmates from the Port-au-Prince. He returned back to Ulukalala and his home, feeling completely defeated and hoping for another opportunity. Okay, there's some details that I um, probably should mention regarding Mariner's name. Because in the previous chapter, chapter 8, um, it is titled, I Become a Chief of Tonga. And this is the first time in the book that we see Mariner being referred to uh, by other Tongans as Toki. And so I don't know if that coincides with the fact that he got an allotment of land. Uh, as we talked about in the last episode. Because in Tongan culture, you don't really get a hingoa, and the name that was given to Mariner was Toki Ukamea, which means iron axe. And so I think, or at least my theory is, is that now that he has a official allotment of land, it uh, felt appropriate for him to mention that at this time of his book. Now, how his name Toki Ukamea came up... Um, it was when he returned from the ship, so he thought he was going to be able to hop on the ship that came to Vava'u and go back to England, um, but he was rejected by the captain because the ship was just too full. But when he returned to the island in Vava'u, um, 
all of you know Ulkalala's men were like teasing him and calling him Toki, and so that's the first time we ever hear the name mentioned. And it's not until two chapters later where he、um, actually goes into more detail about the name and how he got it. And、um, I'll save that bit for when we get to that chapter. But for now, we are going to take a detour from the story、uh, because in chapter nine. Which is where we're at right now in the book.、Uh, Mariner actually、uh, talks about a chief who arrived from、uh, Fiji by the name of Kaumoala, and there's an entire chapter dedicated just to him. And initially, I was gonna skip this chapter, but then I read into it. And、uh, what's fascinating about this part of Mariner's、um, book is is Kaumoala is a famous navigator, and so. From his story and from his experience, we really learn a lot about what navigation was like at that time. Another interesting fact is the word "kaumoala." Kaumoala refers to wayfinders, and so those of you that are Tongan and Moala is your last name, you come from a rich tradition of wayfinding and navigation. So, how awesome is that? Mariner writes. Another month now elapsed without any important circumstance occurring, when there arrived from the Fiji Islands four canoes, bringing a Tongan matapule named Kaumoala and his retinue, who had been absent from Tonga about fourteen years. A narrative of this person's adventures at foreign islands. I had best form a chapter by itself, and so we will pick up the story from there. The events of this chapter takes place from 1808 to 1809. Merner says, "Gaumoala went out to the Fiji Islands with a number of young men for the sake of an excursion and to mingle in the wars of those people. Sometimes at one island, sometimes at another, from the same motives, probably as actuated Tui Halafatai." After having been absent about two years, he set sail on his return home, and having arrived within sight of Avau, the wind became unfavorable to land, and the sea running very high, he was obliged to change his course and make way for Samoa. But the wind soon increasing to a heavy gale, drifted him to the island of Futuna, situated northwest of Samoa. As soon as the natives of this place observed his approach. A number of small canoes, for they were not in possession of sailing canoes, came from the shore to meet him, and consistently with the laws and customs of the island, took possession of his canoe and all his property. It forms an important part of the religion of this island to consider everything that arrives there, whether of great or little value, as the property of their gods. No matter whether it be a large canoe or a log of wood, it is first offered to the gods by the priest. With an appropriate address, and is afterwards shared out amongst the chiefs. This is the method of making offerings to the gods in Tonga. And as Kaumoala made no mention of anything particular in this ceremony among the people of Futuna, I presume it to be conducted in the same way. All right, let's pause right here just to situate where、uh, Wallace and Futuna is.、Uh, Wallace and Futuna. Wallace actually used to be called Uvea, and、uh, currently. Wallace and Futuna is、uh, administered, which is a very polite way of saying it is a territory 
or colonized by France. Ouvert is now named Wallace after a British explorer by the name of Captain Samuel Wallace. And you know how they do back in the day. They quote unquote discover new lands and then they name it after themselves. But you know what? I have no room to talk because Ouvert was actually colonized during the Tuitonga Empire by Tongans. And the Tongans were very mean. Uh, there's a long story about just the brutality under the reign of the Tuitonga Empire. And we'll come back and revisit that because it connects to this part of the book. Culturally, Uvea is very Tongan. Language is almost similar, and even just some of our cultural practices are very similar. Whereas the island of Futuna is very Samoan because it was occupied by Samoans. Uvea and Futuna is uh, north of Tonga and about 300 miles west of. Uh, what is now American Samoa. All right, let's return to the book and actually explore a little bit more about this tradition of um, breaking apart a canoe when a stranger or someone from another island arrives on your shores, which is very interesting. I've heard this tradition before in Tonga. We actually have a proverb, Vete Fakafutuna, which uh, relates to this particular incident with Kaumuala when he arrived in Futuna. I believe I talked about this already in the book. I can't remember what chapter, but let's just do a uh, refresher. Mariner's time in Tonga was from 1804, sorry, 1806 to 1810. I'm suspecting that he wasn't really aware of the background of Vetefa uh, Futuna, because that takes place place in the height of the Tuitonga Empire and this particular incident that took place around 1535 AD. And this is when Takalawa was assassinated uh, in a lagoon in Mu'a. If you remember from previous episodes, we um, talked about how uh, the Tuitonga was a divine position due to the very first uh, Tuitonga Ahoeitu who was um, part god and part mortal. The Tuitonga was the paramount chief of all of Tonga and also served as a representative for Hikuleo, who was one of the most important gods or goddess in uh, the Tongan pantheon of gods. Now the Tuitonga empire was actually, it was huge. Um, it went as far as uh, some of the islands in Micronesia, uh, Pompeii and Kiribati. Um, it also went as far as uh, Vanuatu, even New Caledonia, which is way out west, and then also to Niue, to the east. And one of the expectations uh, from these territories that uh, belonged to the Tuitonga Empire is that they had to observe the Inasi. So in previous episodes, we talked about the Inasi, which is uh, the offerings of the first fruit in which the Tuitonga would accept the first fruits on behalf of the goddess Hikuleo. And so throughout history, we see that there are uh, multiple assassinations that are made or attempted on um, the Tuitonga. Takalaua was the 23rd Tuitonga. And as previously mentioned, he was assassinated uh, by two men while swimming in a lagoon in Mu'a. These two men were named Tamasia and Malofafa. 
And after they assassinated Datu Itonga, they were pursued by his son, um, actually sons, Kaulfonua uh, Fekai and his brother Moonga Motua and some other brothers as well. And they chased them uh, throughout all the islands in Tonga, including the Niwas, Eua. And then from there, they went to Futuna. And then from Futuna, they went to Fiji. And then from Fiji, uh, they went to Uvea, where they eventually captured um, the two men. As they were pursuing the men, uh, there was a huge battle at uh, Futuna. And although Kaulfonua Fekai won that battle, uh, he left his brother behind. And so he was captured by uh, the people of Futuna. Several days later, Kaulfonua Fekai returned for his brother. And when the Futuans saw that uh, he was returning, they were pretty much scared shitless. Because apparently at the battle they had uh, just several days before, Kaulfenua Fekai like totally effed them up. And even though he got speared, he was still fighting and he was fine. And so the people of Futuna was um, terrified that he was coming back. And they were asking his brother, whose name is Lota Wai, what they should do in order to avoid another conflict with Kaulufenua Fekai. So he told them that they have to wear a ngafi ngafi, which is a really fine woven mat. And then they have to wear around their necks the leaf of the ifi tree. So kind of like a wreath that they wear around their neck. And in Tongan culture, this is... Um, the ultimate sign of humility. Um, this is how you ask for forgiveness when you have offended somebody or offended a family. Uh, this is typically what you would wear. And this tradition still goes on to this very day. So the people of Futuna did exactly what uh, Lota Wai told them to do. Um, and this plan worked. And so in return for sparing his brother, Kaulfanua uh, Fekai gave them a canoe to dismantle and made the proclamation, Any vessel that comes from Tonga is yours, but do not kill its people. All goods that are brought in it from Tonga are to be your present. That is my payment to you because you allowed my brother, whom you took to live, and I received a wound from you in the fight. That is why I give you the goods from the Tongan vessels. And this is where that tradition of Vete Fafutuna comes from. And so Mariner says that uh, this is a religious ritual. I don't think it's a religious ritual. I think the people of Uvea were just observing uh, this tradition that was established back in the 1500s from this story of Kaulfenua uh, Fekai. Um, speaking of, so he eventually, um, him and his brothers, eventually captured the two uh, men that assassinated their father. They knocked out all their teeth, made them chew kava. And um, those of you, if you've never seen a kava root, um, this is very, very difficult to do, uh, very painful to do. Um, chewing kava, it's like, I don't know if any of you have had um, sugarcane and trying to uh, strip the skin off of sugarcane and even just eating sugarcane with your bare teeth. That's a very hard thing to do. But uh, can you imagine dry kava or just a dry twig and you're like forced to chew it without any teeth and your teeth has just been like freshly knocked out of your mouth. And so this is what happened to those two men. And then eventually 
um, they were killed. Okay, so back to the book. This spoilation is believed to be necessary for the welfare of the country, lest the gods should send a sickness among them and cut them off for infringing upon this great doctrine of their religion. This seems a very arbitrary law and likely to have been invented for the purpose of plundering strangers under the mark of religion. This, however, is not absolutely the case, for although they strip all strangers without distinction that come within their power, yet in return they fit them out with other canoes entirely at the expense of the chiefs who shared the plunder, and supply them with so much of the produce of the island as may be necessary to support them in their way home. Together with presents of their ngatu, mats, tortoise shell, etc., and withal behave very kindly, but not one single article that has been taken from them, however small the value, is again returned, even with the most earnest entreaty. Gamwala's canoe was laden with sandalwood, esteemed a very rich commodity at Tonga, but not one splinter of it was ever returned to him. Although the natives of Futuna could make no use of it, not having adopted the practice of oiling themselves. So that's just a bit from the book, uh, Mariner continuing on about uh, this tradition of uh, having to surrender your canoe if you are arriving on an island. And then um, with the full understanding that your canoe is going to be fully dismantled. Um, and again, you know, he's referring to it as a religious um, ritual. And um, I don't know how true that is. I'm wondering if that's just a part. This was a part of uh, navigation uh, culture. Um, and um, he just wasn't aware of it because at the time of when Mariner was in Tonga, we're starting to see the decline of... Um, Polynesian navigation. And a lot of that just has to do with the fact that the Tuitonga, uh, the power of the Tuitonga in Tongan society was already um, fading. And if you remember from other ep from uh, previous episodes, uh, the Tuihatakalaua line was created as a secular line and the, the Tuihatakalaua became the administrators of uh, more, you know, more of the the policy making, politics, running the government, whereas the Tuitonga uh, was really relegated to just a spiritual leader. Okay, so I feel like we've done a lot of detouring, but uh, let me just get us back to where we are in the book. Kamuala had spent 14 years in Fiji and he was com coming back to Tonga. And on his way back to Tonga, he wasn't able to land in Vava'u due to bad weather. And um, he ended up in the island of Futuna. As he arrived in Futuna, the ritual of Vete uh, Fa Futuna was observed. Uh, this is when uh, the locals of Futuna took Kamuala's um, canoe dismantled it completely hence the the word vete fa which means to completely dismantle or take apart uh, they also took all of his possessions that were on his canoe uh, which was mostly sandalwood which was very um, precious commodity in the islands back at that time 
Let's pick up where we left off in the book. So Mirner records Kamuala、uh, describing the method of fighting in Fiji,、uh, in which he participated in a lot of the, the wars in Fiji. When a man pierces his enemy with a pike, he endeavors to lift him up from the ground on one end of it, or if opportunity will allow, he calls some of his comrades to his assistance, who, thrusting their pikes also into him, they lift him high in the air and carry him in triumph. The mode of fighting with shark's teeth is as follows the teeth being fixed in three rows on the palm and fingers of a species of glove made of the plated bark of the hiapo. Hiapo, for those of you that are unfamiliar, this is the paper mulberry plant.、Um, this is what we make、uh, ngatu out of. So they're wearing gloves made out of the hiapo, and then it's got、uh, shark's teeth also、um, attached to it. Both hands being armed in this manner, every man endeavors to come to a close scuffle with his antagonist and to tear open his bowels with these horrid weapons. The supreme chief in Kaumuala's time was a man of remarkable bodily strength and was always accustomed to fight with this sort of gauntlet in preference to the pike, not, however, to tear open the bowels of his enemy, but merely to catch a firmer hold of him while he threw him on his face. He would then place his foot upon the small of his back. And seizing fast hold of the hair on his head, and so bend his spine as to break it. Damn! This is like some brave heart craziness. By way of defense from pikes of their adversaries, they wear on the left side a species of armor made of the husk of coconut plated thick, and stuffed and quilted on the inside with the loose husk picked fine. This reaches from the axilla down to their hip. Their wars generally originate in quarrels about hereditary right or exaction of tribute. I do not know how long Kaumuala remained at Futuna, but it must be at least 12 months to have afforded him time to build another large canoe fit for his voyage. Having at length accomplished this, he set sail again with presents of ngatu, mats, and a sufficient quantity of provisions for his voyage, and directed his course for the Fiji Islands. For the purpose of laying in another cargo of sandalwood. So, as was the protocols of that time,、um, even though his canoe was dismantled,、uh, he was able to build another canoe while he was in Futuna, and then he returned to Fiji to procure more sandalwood since it was taken by、uh, the people of Futuna when he first landed there. And,、um, and of course, as Cultural protocols dictated. They also outfitted him with all of the provisions that he needed, in addition, finery such as、uh, fine mats and ngatu. He had on board 35 of his own people, including 14 or 15 Tongan women, besides whom he had four male natives of Futuna who begged to go with him that they might visit distant countries. In his way, he touched at the island of Rotuma. A place noted for the peaceable disposition of the inhabitants. In the notes in、uh, Paul Dell's book that I'm、uh, cross referencing for this podcast,、uh, he doesn't think that he、um, that it was Rotuma. He thinks that Mariner was actually mistaken、um, and that he was actually in the island of Alofi, which is also、uh, one of the three islands in Wallace and Futuna. Alofi is also the name of Niue's capital. Uh, but Niue is all the way down south and、uh, east of Tonga. So, Mariner continues.、Um, so, apparently,、um, 
Gaumala got a lot of, uh, he was received very well with an uncommon degree of respect, he says. Um, as they were little accustomed to the appearance of strangers, they were greatly surprised at the sight of so large a canoe and considered this chief and his men as Otua, or superior beings, and would not suffer them to land till they had spread on the ground a large roll of ngatu, which extended about 50 yards, reaching from the shore to the house prepared for them. At this island, Kaumuala remained but a short time. During his stay, however, the natives treated him with very great respect and took him to see some bones which were supposed to have belonged once to an immense giant, and whom they relate a marvelous account, which is a current at Tonga as well as Rotuma. Again, Mariner's referencing Rotuma. Uh, Paul Dale, uh, again, uh, he believes that uh, Mariner's mistaken Alofi for uh, Futuna because Alofi is a day's sail away, and uh, that's exactly the distance, uh, the time and distance that it took for Gaumuala to reach um, this island. Whereas Rotuma is about 560 miles northwest of Futuna, which would have taken them much longer to get there. Okay, so now Mariner tells a story within a story, again. At a period before men of common stature lived at Tonga, two enormous giants resided there, who happening on some occasion to offend their god. He punished them by causing a scarcity on all the Tongan islands, which obliged them to go and seek food elsewhere. As they were vastly above the ordinary size of the sons of men nowadays, they were able, with the greatest imaginable ease, to stride from one island to another, provided the distance was not more than about a couple of miles. At all events, their stature enabled them to wade through the sea without danger, the water in general not coming higher than their knees, and in the deepest places not higher than their hips. Thus situated, no alternative was left but to splash through the water in search of more plentiful soil. At length they came in sight of the island of Rotuma. Here we go again, Rotuma. And viewing it at a distance with hungry eyes, one of them bethought himself that if this small island was never so fruitful, it could not supply more food than would be sufficient for himself at one meal. He resolved therefore wisely out of pure consideration for his own stomach to make an end of his companion. This he accordingly did, but by what means, whether by drowning him, strangling him, or giving him a blow on the head, tradition does not say. When he arrived at the island, he was no doubt very hungry, but at the same time he felt himself so sleepy that he was resolved to lie down and take a nap, particularly at night, as night was fast approaching, and to satisfy his hunger the next morning. Very lucky it was for the poor natives that he did so, for it appears this island was inhabited at the time. He accordingly made a pillow of the island, and not choosing to lie in the water, he stretched his legs, for the story goes, over to the island of Futuna, making a sort of bridge from one place to another. Uh, this is why uh, Alofi, to me, and also I think Paul Dell was correct, why this would make more sense. By and by he snored to such a degree that both islands were shaken as if by an earthquake, so as greatly to disturb the peaceable inhabitants. The people of the latter island, being roused from their slumbers, were greatly alarmed, and well they might be, as this was unseasonable and extraordinary noise. I like that word, unseasonable. You're so unseasonable. 
Okay, having repaired to the place where his head lay and discovering that it was an immense gigantic being fast asleep, they held a consultation what was best to be done and came at a length to a resolution of killing him, if possible before he awoke lest he might eat them all up. With this intention, every man armed himself with an axe, and at a signal given they all struck his head at the same moment. Up started the giant with a tremendous roar, and recovering his feet, he stood aloft on the island. Being stunned with the blows, he staggered and fell again with his head and body in the sea. And being unable to recover himself, he was drowned, his feet remain upon dry land, and thus the great enemy was destroyed. Paul Dale has some notes here. The fable that the giant came from Tonga probably indicates that the islands of Futuna, Alofi, and Rotuma were originally settled by people from Tonga. And although the people of Futuna had lost the skill to make oceanic voyages, they recalled the name and the island of Tonga. As a proof of these facts, they show two enormous bones which, as they say, belong to this giant, and the natives in general believe it. The people of Tonga, however, are not quite so credulous with respect to this story, which they generally tell you in a jocose way. I asked Gamwala what sort of bones they were. He replied that they were enormously large. He could not well describe their shape. He was sure they were bones, though they were not at all like human bones, and he supposed they must have belonged to some fish. To any newcomer, the first question is, have you seen the giant's bone? But it would appear that communications with the island were not very frequent, since the inhabitants made so sad a mistake as to think Gamwala and his followers were gods. Gamwala shortly took his departure from the island with three of the native women on board in addition to his other followers and sailed for Fiji. Okay, just a side note, I have never heard any, I've never heard this story before. So any of you out there in a listening audience, if you've heard this story, uh, this legend of the giants, um, please let me know. Share what you know with us. Okay, so Kamwala arrives in Fiji at Vitilevu, and uh, Mariner says uh, he took up his residence with the chief of the island, where he remained a considerable length of time, assisting in the war with the other islands. The inhabitants of Vitilevu were much more ferocious than those of the other Fiji islands. This, however, is not stated merely upon the authority of Kamuala, who occasionally was apt to exaggerate a little. I frequently saw and conversed with some of the Fiji natives, as well as with those of the other islands who were at Tonga in my time. Besides which, I have since been at Bau, one of the Fiji islands, and consequently was able to form some judgment. The inhabitants of Vitilevu are not only more ferocious, but they are much better skilled in war than those of the other islands and are therefore much dreaded by them. To give themselves a fiercer appearance, they bore a hole through the soft part of the septum of the nose, through which in time of war they stick a couple of feathers, nine or twelve inches long, which spread out over each side of their face like immense mustaches, giving them a very formidable appearance. The worst feature of their barbarism is the horrible practice of eating human flesh, which they carry to a greater extent than any of the other Fiji people. The chief of the island was reported to have a remarkable appetite in this way. We must not take him, therefore, as a sample for the rest. For he was not in the habit of sacrificing his prisoners immediately, but of actually ordering them to be operated on and put in such a state as to get both fat and tender 
afterwards to be killed as he might want them. Their hands and feet, particularly the latter, are considered to be the choicest part. Mmm, yummy. Okay, Mariner goes on to just, uh, he, he's going on and on about cannibalism and wars. Um, but I do like, um, there's some notes here from Paul Dale that I want to read. The internecine wars in Tonga followed closely upon the three visits of Captain Cook to those islands in the year 1773, 74, and 77. Although there was at the time of Cook's visit some interchange between Fiji and Tonga, testified by Cook's discovery of Fiji in, or Fijians in Tonga, and although the Fiji warriors had already instructed Tongan men in the arts of warfare, Tongan tradition has it that those early days were peaceful ones. It may be that the visits of Captain Cook and later other European ships which showed the Tongan people manufacturing arts, tools, and weapons superior to their own, broadened their horizons, contributed to their restlessness, and led them in some way to abandon their formal or their former peaceful cultural patterns. While he was in Fiji, the natives there at Vitilevu was uh, recounted to him a story about an enormous lizard uh, that they believed came from Pulotu and pretty much terrorized the villages there. And uh, there are accounts of how uh, this creature would drag people into the sea when they bathed. A, a woman was washing taro um, in the lake and was also a victim of this um, enormous lizard. And I'm going to agree with Paul Dale that this was probably a crocodile that somehow ended up in um, Fiji. For the remainder of this chapter, uh, Mariner just describes, you know, cultural practices in Fiji. I don't want to get into it too much because I don't know how much of that he really witnessed for himself or whether he is um, re recollecting from other people's, you know, secondhand storytelling kind of a thing. So I'm going to do us all a favor and just uh, avoid this part of the book because we all know how problematic this can be. As Mariner mentioned before, he's been to uh, Bao in Fiji, and he recalls the last battle that Gaumuala took place in uh, before he departed from Fiji for Vavau. Um, and this involves Bao and also a very small island he mentions by the name of Sisia. Or I don't know if it, uh, oh, actually he does say it's an island, okay? So in Sicilia there was a fort that was almost impregnable, and the nearest part is no more than 100 yards from Bao, and at lower water joins it by a ridge of the sand. At the place where this ridge joins Sicilia there is a high rock, almost perforated by nature, and which art has rendered completely so. This rock is converted into a strong fortress commanding the whole island, which indeed is rendered inaccessible in every part by a heavy surf and dangerous rocks, except just to the left of the large rock and that part is defended by a high fencing. On this small but strong island several natives of Tonga resided, for the chief was partial to them, because his wife was also a native of that place. He therefore readily admitted Kamuala and his men to come and also reside with him. Gamwala took an active part with the chief of Sisia in his war against the people of Bao. This war had kept up for a long time, and the people of Sisia constantly committing depredations on the people of Bao. 
without these being at all able to retaliate. From time to time, they had taken a great number of prisoners, which were kept apart for a purpose directly to be mentioned. A few days before the period that Kamuala had fixed on his return to Vava'u, the chief of Sisia made a sortie from his stronghold and gave a general battle to the people of Bao. The men of Sisia were victorious and returned in triumph to their little island. The chief, elated by these victories, resolved now to have an extraordinary feast before the departure of Kaumuala. On the following day, therefore, a grand warlike dance was performed by the men with bracelets of fringed bark under their knees and of shells around their arms. Their bodies and faces were painted with various configurations in black and yellow, producing no doubt a strange appearance. Each man was armed with a club and spear, and thus equipped the whole body of them exhibited various warlike attitudes, such as throwing the spear, striking with the club, shouting and singing alternately. When they had finished their dancing, they sat down to drink kava, after which the chief gave orders to his cooks to bring forward the feast. Immediately they advanced two and two, each couple bearing on their shoulders a basket, in which was the body of a man barbecued like a hog. Hmm. The bodies were placed before the chief, who was seated at the head of his company, on a large green. When all these victims were placed on the ground, hogs were brought in like manner. After that, baskets of yams, and on each was a baked fowl. These being deposited in like manner, the number of dishes was counted and announced aloud to the chief. There appeared to be 200 human bodies, 200 hogs, 200 baskets of yams, and like number of fowls. The provisions were then divided into various portions, and each declared to be the portion of such a god, after which they were given to the care of as many principal chiefs who shared them out to all their dependents, so that every man and woman on the island had a share of each of these articles, whether they chose to eat them or not. It would be perhaps increasing the horror of this picture beyond the truth to state that every person present partook of human flesh. These unfortunate victims were sacrificed and cooked more for a matter of form probably than anything else. But it must be confessed that the chiefs, warriors, and more ferocious part of the company partook of this inhuman diet, and several of them feasted on it. Such, at least, was the account of Kaumuala, and I had too much reason to think it true, because I afterwards heard the same account from several of the natives of Sisia who visited Tonga. A few days afterwards, Kaumuala set sail for Vava'u, where he arrived safely with about 50 attendants, as formerly noted, consisting of Tongan people, natives of Fiji, and others. As soon as his arrival was made known to Finau, he issued orders to the owners of the different plantations of Vava'u to bring to the Malae at Neyafu whatever they could afford as presents to Kaumuala and his companions. It is always customary to make presents in this way to a newly arrived party, particularly to persons much respected as Kaumuala who has long been absent. On this occasion, there was wrestling, fighting with clubs, gava drinking as formerly described, it must be remarked, however, that when these great exhibitions of wrestling and fighting are shown on the account of the arrival of visitors or persons who have long been absent, it is customary for the newcomers to be challenged by anyone on every one of the islands who chooses. So then, in the end of the day, they are pretty certain 
of getting a thorough beating. No man, however, is obliged to accept the challenge, nor is it thought dishonorable to refuse it. In short, as they merely beat one another in a friendly way, it is considered a sport for general entertainment, in which any man may take an active part if he feels himself at so disposed. In these encounters, they frequently get their arms broken, but this gives no one any concern, scarcely even the party who suffers. Who immediately gets it set by anyone in the company, and they are tolerably expert at this form from frequent practice, and bound up with bandages of ngatu using splints made from the coconut tree. All right, and that is the end of the chapter on Kaumuala. I initially was not going to do this chapter uh, just because, uh, for one, I don't really care for Mariner's take as a cultural anthropologist, and I don't really care for his uh, narrative on Fiji because a lot of it was secondhand account. So, um, and the other thing is, is there's just a lot of detours in the chapter, but. Some of the things that I found interesting was this figure Kaumuala and the fact that he was able to um, navigate himself uh, throughout the, the South Pacific effortlessly. And um, he had such a knowledge of uh, navigation. Um, so in my research for this podcast, I found um, some research papers that have been written about him that was very fascinating to read. Another thing I learned from this chapter, and I think this is a value, valuable lesson for me and for all of us as listeners, is that, uh, yes, Mariner was in Tonga, but I think that even his account is certainly not immune from scrutiny. And I think the biggest example is, is I, I, I believe, his uh, ignorance of uh, where the origins of the phrase Vete Fa Futuna comes from. All right. Um, again, I want to thank all of you for listening. Um, I want to give some shout outs to some people that I ran into over the weekend. Uh, shout out to Sela and Christine Paongo. Um, thank you so much for listening to the podcast and uh, for your support. And it was so nice to just see you guys at Manny's. Woo woo. Shout out to the Manny's crew. Um, and it was so nice just to be out. I think that was the first time I've ever gone out to a bar since the pandemic started last year so thank you again for supporting the podcast and for all of you that are listening uh the next chapter we are going you know we spent so much time in vava'u that we hadn't gotten any updates on what's happening in tongatapu and so in the next chapter that's what that's about it's an update from tongatapu and then we are going to get into the very interesting story about a um, I mentioned this earlier the story of Elizabeth Mori a castaway in Tonga who was actually married to a Tongan chief um, and we will get more into that story next time oh and one more thing a shout out to all of the Pacific Islanders that are participating in the Olympics in Tokyo you all looked fabulous on opening night and wishing you all um, the best in your events, and may you do so safely. Mm-hmm.